Let me ask you a question before we begin. How many in here today are excited and waiting for the return of our Lord? I'm going to spend the next four weeks together talking about that topic. The topic of the end of the age. We begin this new venture in and through the gospel according to Mark. And this series begins with the question, is this the end of the world? Now, as you can imagine, dealing with COVID and the vaccine and all these other things that have happened on the world scene in the last year have really made people ask this question. Is the end of the world near? Is, is the coming of the Lord Jesus, is it, is it ever present? And to that, I would answer that question. The coming of the Lord has always been imminent since the Lord hung on the cross and rose again. The question is such a prevalent question today, it is such a relevant question today that even the secular world asks of it. If we have been paying attention to the heartbeat of the world, we already know that there are so many different side roads and interpretations concerning the end of the age that one can become confused and lost in thought trying to decipher all of them and trying to take them all in. Let me say this in this series. I'm, I'm going to say this. It is not my objective to try to dissect all of the aspects of what we call eschatology, but to take Mark at his word and to work from there. We want to take Mark at his word. Amen? Amen. First things first. I know that we just sat down from singing a song of worship, but I'll ask you if you will, if you'll stand one more time for the reading of the word of the Lord. Out of honor of the reading of the scripture, let's stand together with our Bibles turned to Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. And the word of the Lord says, according to the evangelist Mark, and he came out of the temple, that is Jesus, and the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do, not, do you see these great buildings? There will be not one stone left upon another, and they will be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but it is not the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will rise against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines, and these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Be on your guard, 
For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand for what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures until the end will be saved. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of those sobering words. And you may be seated. As best we can, I will ask you, if you will, as best that we can, and I know it's difficult, to lay aside our presuppositions and our conjectures about what we already know and have been taught about end-time events. As best we can, I'll ask you for just a moment to lay them to the side for a moment. And some say that this is almost an impossible task to totally work from a clean slate, but as best we can, I would like, the, I like us, whatever we have learned in the past of end times and, and prophecy, I would like us for just a few moments, if we can, as best we can, to, to try to lay them from the side and to take Mark at his word and take the word at face value. Is that something that we can do this morning? I hope and pray that we can. So, at the beginning of the sermon, I used this word eschatology. You may have heard that word in your Sunday school class or small group. Eschatology would be the study of end time events. In fact, the word is taken from the word eschatos, meaning last, and ology, of course, meaning the study of. Put them together, you've got the study of last things. And so we will be handling a series of prophecies today, specifically from the Lord Jesus, given by him to an immediate audience. Somebody say the immediate audience. Let me hear you. The immediate audience. Let's remember that as we travel through here. Given by the Lord Jesus to an immediate audience and a future audience. So that would be us today. Now, for a word spoken by a prophet or a word spoken to be a prophecy, a genuine prophecy, well, obviously it is a no-brainer that it must be written before the actual events come to pass. The word of wisdom by anyone who studies prophecy or just a general rule of interpretation altogether. Every time you sit down to read a portion of scripture, a rule of interpretation, a rule to remember is that this word was written to an immediate audience first. Who was this word written to and what does it say to them? And then we say, what does it say to us? So let us see what the verses say to the disciples and how they impact us. So we're going to kind of like uh, the, the verses today will have a duality to them. They will speak something to the disciples and they certainly will have application for us today. This series will be, I hope you'll stick with me, invite some folks with you. This will be a four-part series on last things, eschatology, the study of the end of, of days according to the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be working through four, well, really three different questions and an answer in the fourth part series. It is, number one, today, 
Is this the end of the world? Then next week we'll ask, is this the Antichrist? The following week is, this uh, is the coming of Jesus soon? And I can go ahead and tell you yes on that one. And then lastly, no one knows the day, so serve him now. So that is our four-part series that we'll be working through, Lord willing, unless he, of course, does return for his church. And so we'll have to cut that series short, and then we'll be singing praises to the Lord forever and ever. So first I want us to turn our attention to the first two verses that Mark scribes out in first, uh, the first two verses of chapter 13. And I would say to you, as Jesus is interacting with the disciples, he's teaching us something today. And I would say that what he is saying is, there is more to the church than just the building. There is more to the church than just the building. Now, anyone who is a student of the Word of God knows that the building is not the church. Okay? And... That being said, I will say this, that I am grateful for a place that God has given us to assemble. I am grateful that God has given us a place to use wisely. And so it is always amazing to me as God has given us a place to worship why so many people neglect it. See, there was a man who was asked a question in a poll one time. And of course, this could have been Barna or any organization that, that gives out uh, you know, surveys and that kind of thing, or a national poll. And this man was asked, what kind of church do you prefer? And we might answer that and say, well, I would prefer a Southern Baptist church, a Methodist church or whatever. The poll might come back showing different denominations across the board. And this man's response was, his preference was red brick. Red brick. I believe at the end of the age, I believe when we get closer and closer to the return of the Lord Jesus, and we are, when persecution really comes pressing down on the church, I believe it is then that we will really understand, we will understand that there is more to the church than just the building. We will understand this so much better when the world is pressing in upon us. But I want you to realize Western culture, within its framework, the last, listen to me carefully, the last standing fort for religious liberties that has not experienced persecution is the United States of America. We are the last standing fort for religious liberties in the world today. So don't ever say that it can't happen to us. Even the world knows that Christians in America are not persecuted. The, what I would consider a publication that I would not seem too trustworthy to read cover to cover, the Huffington Post. Now before you crucify me, I'm using this as an example. The Huffington Post said this in an article that even, they say, evangelicals say that Christians are being persecuted. And they are. It goes on to say, but not in the United States. 
It goes on to say, in fact, the United States doesn't even make the top 50. And so if a publication like the Huffington Post can realize that, to be sure we know that we are free for now. And it's only a matter of time before the whole world comes against Christ followers. So this message is a warning as well. And, and even so, we hopefully realize that the church is not the building, but the people of Christ. So let's look, verse 1. Jesus comes out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful, what wonderful buildings. See, the disciples were in amazement of the temple structure, and no doubt the temple was not something uh, that they had just seen. All right, this is something that was part of their life, and so the amazement is almost kind of unexpected. Let me ask you this. How many in here this morning, when you walked into the door, you were stricken by amazement by the stained glass windows? How many in here this morning walked in and said, wow, man, this, this building blows me away. Now, you might have noticed some of the posters that were up for Vacation Bible School or maybe have some of the decorations, but probably none of us this morning walked in and said, what a beautiful church that we have. And the reason is, is because we're used to coming into this building. We have come accustomed and used to walking in the building. And the temple was a thing of wonder and amazement. Some would even say it would have been one of the eighth wonders of the world. The historian Josephus said that some of the stones used in the building was 37 feet long by 12 feet and at least 18 feet deep. And so the disciples' amazement was well understood, but almost out of nowhere it seemed. But I want you to know this, with every movement of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is a masterful teacher. I'll, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget going to a funeral. And a person said to me, just grab me. I didn't know who it was. Grab me right out of the blue and just said, hey, come look at our, come look at our beautiful new building. Come look at our beautiful new sanctuary. And I thought to myself, and I don't know who preaches here. I don't know the, I don't know the, the, uh, their beliefs through and through. I, don't, I really don't, I don't know their creeds or lack of creeds or whatever it might be. But I thought to myself, it is not the building that is beautiful. It is the message that is preached inside. One of the most tragic and saddening images to see is a well-constructed church building where the gospel has become watered down and the halls are empty of disciples. Man, what a sad, sad thought that is. Then Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one here that left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There was a great time uh, for the Lord to instruct and to, to make disciples, build his disciples, and then to move the disciples to rightful worship and rightful thinking. The temple stood, it should have stood for rightful worship. It should have been an emblem of how the people must approach the God of all creation rightly and worshipfully. It was, it was that reminder. He gave the prophecy that the temple would be no more. And imagine their amazement. How can this be? The temple is so magnificent. What will happen to where the stones will be displaced? 
But I want you to know that the words of the Lord Jesus came true just as he said that it would. Some have tried to say, well, if you go to Jerusalem and you look, there isn't a stone that is rightly placed it, it, as it was. All, all the placed are, uh, stones are turned over. Uh, there isn't a stone that is left on one another. Prophecy fulfilled. But the point is not to look at the stone's alignment, but another way to say this place will be utterly destroyed. So rewind in history, 70 A.D., this is a year that every Christ follower ought to know, especially the Hebrew nation ought to know this date. 70 AD, the Romans finally destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The Jewish people had rised up and revolted against Rome, and Rome destroyed the temple and the city somewhat. The Romans burnt the inside of the temple and tore down the walls. So this is a, an important year in the history of, of the Jewish people and one that is a reminder to us Christ followers as well. Not only was this a literal tearing down of a temple that is a symbol of worship, it was time for the old sacrificial way to be obliterated and the new covenant under Christ to become preeminent. And so history shows very often as we see with the disciples early on, before 70 A.D., that they lost sight very quickly of what was important. Israel lost sight of what was important, and we do too. Many times we do. We lose sight of what is, what is important, what is the core of what we believe. Sometimes we become distracted in our way that we think. In Israel history, before 70 Years of exile scribed in the Old Testament. If you look at the book of Daniel, we'll see this. You look at Jeremiah, you'll see this prophecy. The Israelites were in exile for 70 years. Why? Because they turned their backs from God to look towards idols. And so the Lord judged them. He judged them because of their idolatry. And in fact, the Lord God called his own people. He likened them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is all because they lost sight of genuine worship. And because they had turned their backs on God, hear what the Lord says to them. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Bring no more vain offerings or incense. It is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I just, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I can't do it. I can't stand it anymore. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In Israel, this is what it looks like to lose focus. You're wasting your time if your heart is not turned to me in worship and if you have not repented of your sin. God will not bless sin. And so what Jesus is doing is steering and directing and turning the hearts of his disciples to what is important. 
And then he's giving them a warning. The temple then represented for Jesus, for his disciples, it represented wayward worship, which is not worship at all. But now is the time to turn to Messiah, who is coming again, but not until persecution comes. From the hand of the Apostle Paul, it gives a good, what I would consider a thesis, even though this is not connected per se, I believe it gives us a helpful insight as to what the Lord Jesus is teaching. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And I know that the Apostle Paul is drawing comparisons between our body and the tent. He's drawing comparison to, to our body and, and them and the body being destroyed, if, as you will. But we know that our hope does not lie in what is material, but in the truth of the gospel. That is his gospel. And so we know that there is more to the church than just material things. So I love the fact that we have vacation Bible school stuff decorated. I wish we had more. I love the fact that we are reminded of the gospel. I, I, I love the fact that we see this. When years ago, we, it might have been frowned on to hang a picture up, that depicts some scripture. I think sometimes we invest way too much. Now, I know that God has given us something that we need to take care of, and that's, and that's important. But one day is going to come when there won't be a stone left upon one another here. Verse 3 says, He sat on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives, opposite of the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, the four Ask them privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are accomplished? The question was, uh, has, this question has enamored the world over, even to this day, when will the world end? Or we could say, what are the signs of the end? Well, Jesus gives us some signs. Our Lord is getting down to what you might call brass tacks. This phrase is, comes from a 19th century rhyming slang uh, like saying hard facts. So the Lord is getting down to the hard facts of the future. But he first gives them a stern warning. He says in verse 5, See that no one leads you astray. I want you, if you have your Bible right now, underline that in chapter 13. That will drive the whole chapter. Let no one lead you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And God forbid the one who is leading people astray. First things first, let no one lead you astray. And the way that people are led astray today is by people not knowing the word of the Lord and then by people twisting the word of the Lord to fit their own needs. The same way they done it then is the same way they do it now by twisting God's word, distorting God's word, pulling it out of context and making it say something that the word of God does not say. 
This warning runs the whole chapter. Let no one lead you astray. Be aware of these things that are coming. Why do you think it is so important to teach our young folks, our students, like we saw this morning? Why do you think it's so important to teach them the brass tacks of the Bible? So we might say, has this prophecy come to pass? Is it coming to pass? Matthew 24, verse 4, has the same warning. But it is amazing to me how popular deceivers have been through the ages with what we would call their eschatological uh, programs, predictions of the end of days. I'll never forget this. May 7th, 1988. Why do I remember that day? Because it's my birthday. I remember May 7th, 1988, I had a basketball in hand. I was walking around the side of my house, heading to a basketball goal, thinking of something that I had just heard on the radio as I have gotten out of the car. And what I had heard was this man by the name of Edgar Weisnut, who had predicted that the rapture would happen in September. Scared me to death. I might have been 10, 11 years old, and I'm walking with this basketball, and I literally, I remember this thought to this day saying, well, at least I got a few months left. <laughs> well, as we know, that didn't happen. Didn't come to pass, and the world is full of these charlatans, and you know it. And the Bible tells us, and we'll examine this in the last part of this series, that no one knows the time when the Lord will return. Harold Camping is another. I don't know if you know the name of Harold Camping, but 1994, Harold Camping had made a prediction, I mean, right down to the day that the, that the rapture was going to happen, 1994, and he had a publication that would go out on the radio, and he would announce, it's coming, get ready. And, of course, it didn't happen. Fast forward to the year 2010, 2011. Harold Camping had predicted the rapture yet again. In fact, he had billboard signs made up with the date of the rapture on them. If you have that slide, and here they are. This is actual billboard from Harold Camping's ministry, quote unquote. Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. Cry mightily unto God. And he had predicted this at least almost a whole year. Harold Camping predicting that the rapture was going to occur on this day. In fact, his quote-unquote ministry spent over $100 million spreading that the world was going to end on this day. Now, don't you know that that $100 million could have gone to feed some children or to spread the rightful gospel? So what of the warning that many will come in my name? So here are folks who are deceiving, right? What of the warning that many will come in my name? To be sure, Harold Camping didn't say that he is Jesus Christ. Throughout modern history, there have been many people that have claimed to be Jesus Christ. There are cult leaders like David Koresh of, the, of Waco, Texas, the Branch Davidian who claimed to be the Messiah. You have people like psycho Charles Manson in an interview with Geraldo Rivera. Of course, off the rocker claimed to be Jesus Christ. Of course, nobody takes him seriously. 
And from the middle of the first century until the 1960s, there have been 25 claims for people that said that they were Messiah. Not to, it, not to mention contemporary claims in the last 20 years. More closely related, again, to the immediate audience, Peter, James, John, and Andrew are people like Thesodus and Simon bar who claim to be the Messiah. Simon, in fact, tried to lead a revolt against Rome as Messiah. So these prophecies absolutely come to pass. And there are still people today who claim to be Messiah. Then Jesus makes a future prediction. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Notice the last portion of verse 17, but the end is not yet. Now we know the big wars over the years, World War I, World War II, we know Vietnam, the Gulf Wars, we know of those, those uh, wars. But, but I would imagine to you that this means nothing to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They will live through a Jewish uprising and live to see Rome, their homeland, destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. But if I, was to, if I was trying to list wars over the years of wars and rumors of wars, we would be here all day. And I would probably miss some in the process. Somewhere in the world right now, somewhere in the world right now, at any given time, people are warring one with another. There's a war somewhere in the world. These four disciples would see at least three major threats to the Christian faith from Caligula to Nero, which Nero would begin the first persecution, the first great persecution for the church. And Jesus says, hey, this ain't the end. These are just simply birth pains. Can I submit to you, since Christ hasn't returned, that we are still in the midst of those birth pains I submit to you that we are still in the midst of these pains. It is because of human pride, it is because of human sinfulness that we stay in constant conflict. And sometimes we see this constant conflict places where it should not be within the halls of the church. That is why John wrote on the Isle of Patmos, the Apocalypsis, the revelation of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, as he writes at the very end, he says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. There is an urgency in that. Please, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In verse 8, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus said there would be earthquakes in various places. It would imply not only in various places, but there would be an increase across the world. Consider the earthquakes first closer to the disciples. Again, our immediate context. Closer to the disciples, there would be an earthquake in Crete, a great earthquake around 46 or 47 A.D. There would be one at Rome at 51 A.D., uh, Apamia in, or in Phrygia at A.D. 60. There would be one at uh, Campania at 63. Not to mention the earthquake after the Lord Jesus died on the cross that is recorded by one Thallus of Africanus. 
not to mention the major earthquakes all over the world, and to maybe help us to get some perspective from the year of 2000 up at least till 2018 where we are now, there is a slide that I've put together that might help us put it in perspective. Now, I know you can't read it, but I know you can see the end of that. And that is from the end, uh, the beginning of the year 2000 on up. Now, technology may have changed. Things may have changed in that regard. But we can see there is certainly an increase of earthquakes around the world. Aside from the wars, the famines, and the earthquake, Jesus says this, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, that are people who are antagonistic to the gospel. And you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Be on guard, he says. It is the warning that they will be delivered over to the Sanhedrin. And over the years, many will be delivered over to councils like the Sanhedrin. You will be beaten. You will stand before the king. You will stand before the rulers to bear witness of Jesus before them. And I don't think America knows what this means. In fact, I can honestly think that most Christians in American churches right now have nothing to worry about. Because they do not speak enough about Christ in the public square to even draw attention from the persecutors. But the day is coming when the church will stand and have to make a stand before the enemies of the gospel. Over the centuries there have been at least ten major persecutions. We find the first persecution under Nero in 67 AD. Nero is probably one of the most famous ones who who burnt the city of Rome and stood on the rooftop playing the fiddle as he blamed the church for burning down the city. Nero was known to be a little bit out of his mind. Second persecution under Domitian in AD 81. The third persecution under Trajan under 108. The fourth under Marcus Aurelius Antonius in 162 AD. The fifth persecution commencing with service in AD 192. The sixth persecution under Maximus in AD 235. One of the great persecution under Decius in 249. One of the great persecutions. The eighth persecution under Valerian in 257 AD. The ninth under Aurelian in 274. And one of the great persecutions, the tenth persecution under Diocletian in 303 AD before Constantine took rule of Rome and made Christianity a national religion. So the world, the landscape is full of great, great persecution, not to mention the many across the globe today. In fact, I would say even out of those 10 today on the landscape of Christendom, there is more persecution today than there has ever been and all the 10 persecutions put together. We just don't see it. This doesn't mention the persecutions across the globe. And it is utterly amazing how many martyrs had stood over the years for their faith and stood and died knowing they were going to die and would not recant, would stand in solidarity with Christ and would not die during these times. And how we today are hushed because we don't want to offend somebody because of sin. And there will come a time... When Christ's church has to stand in times of persecution, are we ready? 
I say, we are not. We are more worried about entertaining than we are if we're sharing the gospel. We're more worried about putting on a show than we are about the gospel. Imagine this scenario. Just bear with me. got a few more minutes. Somebody comes, whatever it might be, and they come into the church, and they hold you at gunpoint, and they take you away. They arrest you. They give you a chance to recant or whatever, and you look at them and say, don't you know all the many programs that we have here at the church? Don't you know that we have all these different things at church? Don't you know of all the things that we are doing in the community? They don't care. All these things might be good and they might help, but in the end, we are so much more worried about if our kids are going to be entertained, if the adults' attention is going to be had, than we are about sharing the gospel. Charles Spurgeon once said, A time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. Entertaining the goats or the lost will never bring the church through persecution of any kind. Verse 10 through 13, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial, deliver you, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. For in that hour, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. The brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children rise against parents. That's happening today. In that time, it would have been during a great persecution. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In regard to verse 10, one would be surprised to find that not all places on the earth have received the gospel. As hard as that is for us to realize, there are places in the world today who have never, ever heard the name of Jesus. And the reason that we don't believe that is because we live in our little cultural sub-Christianized bubble. There are people in the world today who have never heard the name of Jesus. There are people today, even in America, who have heard the name of Jesus but do not know what it means they do not know what it means for Jesus to be Messiah or Savior. And even though this sets an urgency for the preaching of the gospel in its immediate context with Peter, James, John, and Andrew, it heightens the command for us today. When they put you on trial and when you stand as persecuted, don't think of what you might say in defense for the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And I've often said to myself, bear with me, got a few more minutes. If I were ever pressed with the decision of denouncing my faith before persecutors, would I be able to stand? If you stood before your persecutors today, would you be able to stand? And then the Lord reminded me that I would not. Not in my own power, and not in my own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. I would stand confident in him and not myself. Family members will rise against family members. History records many accounts of the great persecution 
during the, during the Diocletian persecution where people were taken from their homes. There would be people who would lie on people, say they were Christians. They would be drugged from their home and their land would be taken. During this great persecution, family members rising up against family members. And in case we need reminding, the world will hate Christ followers, but the promise is one of hope. It says that those who endure to the end will be saved. Meaning, I want you to hear me on this. Okay, we know that the persecuted standing before the Lord will be led by the Holy Spirit. Meaning that the one ultimately will be delivered from the holds of persecution, but more so will bear the fruit of regeneration. I want you to hear what Jesus means in this final salvation. For those who might be, let's say, linguistic nerds, they might be people uh, who enjoy the English language or foreign language, this is written in the effective aorist future passive tense. And all that is to say, let's put it like this, that the one who stands firm in Christ bears the fruit of regeneration, meaning they will be saved. Thus it is the blood of Christ that ultimately saves. So think of it like this. When we stand before the Lord, when we stand before our persecutors, we stand in Jesus and not ourselves. Whether we have gone through great persecution or not, when we stand before the holiness of God, we stand either in Christ or we do not. When we stand before our persecutors, we will stand in our own weak powerless self, or we will stand in the authority of Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit. So it is the question that I asked, is this the end of the world? And I would have to say yes and no. Yes to the fact that ever since Jesus died on the cross and rose again, we have been in the last days. And I would say no to the fact that the world will never really truly end. And what I mean by that is an end of an age, an end of the way of life, the way things are now to something different. Unbelievers do not get a free pass on this. It is not just simply going to end and that's it. We are often worried whether or not the last days are upon us, but why? Is it because we are not ready to go? Are we afraid that Jesus is going to return because we're not ready to go? If you're in Jesus, you're ready to go. Is it because we do not want to give up our privileged life here and, and exchange it for persecution? Listen, you might say right now, well, the church is going to be raptured. I know that. What do you think the people in the world right now who are suffering immense persecution are saying? Well, we shouldn't be going through this. The rapture should have happened. What do the martyrs all over the world say of the rapture and being taken away from suffering? Is it because we have a family member who does not know Christ and we want to linger a little bit longer to hope they come to know the Lord Jesus? I bet if we did a little digging, we would probably come up with some selfish reason, at least I would, of why we are not looking for the end of the age or why we don't even care about it. Jesus gave some predictions that are still pertinent today, but my message to you is right now, do not delay. If you are here today, I want to speak to you. Church, I have spoken to you. All right, It is time to know that we stand in Christ and stand in truth. But there might be somebody here today, I want to speak to you at the very end right now. 
If you're here today and you do not know Christ as Lord, and you know that the Lord Jesus, His Holy Spirit right now, right now is dealing with you, I want you to meet me up front. But I want you to listen. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again so that you might cast your sin upon him and live eternally and look for his coming with anticipation and hope. I want to meet you up front. I want you to come today. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you don't even know if you're saved. I'm going to ask Pastor Jason if he'll come up and lead, lead the music. I'm going to come right up to the front and I'm going to stand there and for those who might feel like they need to come and pray, let's say to receive Christ today, I'm going to stand here for you. Maybe you're here and you're a part of the church and you say the message has touched me today. I want to anticipate the return of Christ. Come and pray at the altar or come and pray with me. If you're here today and you do not know Christ and you're not sure of your salvation, meet me up here at the front if you will.